In this week's In-Ear Insights, we are back from Macon, the Marketing AI Conference, the conference that we've been a part of since its very first event. In fact, uh, Katie, you and I spoke at the 2019, the inaugural event. Um, mm -hmm. And this year, it was bigger and better than ever with more than double the number of participants from uh, the inaugural year, almost more, actually more than triple the number of, of people from last year. And from what Paul Retzer, the 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 founder was saying uh, they've had so much interest in everything they have to offer that they are bursting at the seams uh, because of generative AI. Every talk was generative AI. In fact, you know, traditional machine learning stuff barely even mentioned. It was all generative AI all the time, mostly large language models. Um, I did the opening keynote, uh, which seemed to be uh, well received and things, but in terms of the themes and, and sort of the, the, the big picture for where where marketers think generative AI is, pretty much, I would say most of the crowd was still in the, what is this stuff phase? Or how do I use this productively? Or is this going to be this, you know, the singularity and Skynet? Um, mm -hmm. Sort of those. <laughs> those <amazing laughs> well, you know, can I, I just, first I want to say, you know, how proud I am of Paul and Kathy and Mike and the rest of the team, because they have been beating this drum for years trying to get people to pay attention even i wouldn't say even more so than you chris but just in a different like i mean they're putting a whole event together they're building their whole company around marketing ai it's literally called the marketing ai institute and so to see them have their moment in the sun was just so great because this is they've never wavered from their message and the industry finally caught up enough uh, for people to be like, oh, well, this is where I need to be. So I am just so proud of them and so happy for them uh, that this is how it turned out. Like they stayed the course. And I think there's, you know, without getting too deep, like there's definitely a lesson there of like, stay true to what you know and stay true to your message and people will catch up eventually. And for them, they finally did. So I'm just I'm just so happy for them. Uh, that this is how it worked out. And so, you know, so you did the opening keynote on large learning models. And so for those who weren't there at Macon, that means so it wasn't a breakout session. Everybody at the event was in one of the main ballrooms. And Chris took the stage and scared the bejesus out of everybody. Um, <laughs> but I will say, as you were talking, Chris, uh, on stage, I was back here in Massachusetts getting text messages from a variety of people about how much you were killing it. So do you want to talk a little bit about what the main purpose of that talk was? Like, what were you educating people on? Because the large learning models wasn't just about generative AI. Well, so I, I talked about generative AI the mo most of the focus was on large language models, you know, everything from GPT-4 to Claude 2 to, you know, take your pick of, of all these different things. So it was an introduction. What is this stuff? How do these things, how do companies make these things? And then we spent a lot of time on use cases, like practical, hey, go, you know, take this slide and go try this in the, the system of your choice, whether it's ChatGPT or Claude or whoever. Go try the things so you can see it for yourself. And mm -hmm. then... We talked a bit about the risks and then spent some time on where this stuff is going uh, from, from our perspective. And one of the biggest things that um, I've really been, been hammering on for the last 
two or three months is how how open source adds a big, big, big uh, wrench in the works in terms of the spread of this technology. And the reason for that is when it was just open AI and maybe Google and Microsoft, right? There's, there's some big names, big vendors. Cool. Everybody understands that. And then Meta comes along and says, hey, here's this wonderful model that works really well. Everybody can have it. Model for you and a model for you. They did, they did the Oprah thing. Um, <laughs> and this had a couple of major, major impacts. One, it just took a baseball bat to, to the knees of regulation because you can't regulate it anymore. You can't say OpenAI, Microsoft, and Google. This is the, these are the rules. This is what's going to mm -hmm. happen. Facebook's like, everybody can have it. Now, good luck. Which I thought was so clever because it basically just shot down regulation before it could begin while Congress is discussing like, hey, what do we do about this? Stuff? How do we regulate OpenAI? Facebook's like, well, now good luck regulating this, suckers. Ah, oh, Facebook. Um, okay, so it's a hot mess. We know this. Uh, what were some of the other sessions or talks that stood out to you? Because one of the things that I know events are struggling with is they want to get AI experts, but for a lot of people, AI is still so new that it's really hard to find true experts who've been doing this for a while. Because you can have, you can stick anyone up on stage and say, this is how you build a prompt. Whether it's good or not, uh, the audience may not know. Um, so what were some of the other sessions from true AI experts that stuck out to you that were really valuable that people should be following and paying attention to? So one is actually, it was AI, but not in terms of AI expertise, but in terms of legal expertise. Our friend and law firm, uh, Shannon Torek, uh, Torek Law, took the stage on Thursday to talk mm -hmm. about AI regulation, copyright, and all that stuff. And her session was really informative because one of the things I didn't realize was you can have copyrights and trademarks and stuff like that, and service marks and things, and that protects your intellectual property. <clears throat> but trade secrets are not don't have the same kind of protection because they are inherently secret. If they're disclosed, they're no longer secret and they're, you no longer have claim to them, but you can't lay claim to them without converting them into like a patent or a trademark or a copyright. <clears throat> mm. And so she was saying, if you put trade secret information into a prompt that then goes into uh, a large language model like GPT-4, you have forfeited your right to call that a trade secret because you've handed it over to a third party. I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> right? You know, if I think about all the people who are handling, you know, handling data and going, let's put it into this into Chat GPT. Like, mm, that's that's super dangerous. What if you build your own private large learning model? Like, I guess so. I, I, and that's sort of the question. And I know that you've talked about this a lot. Is there's the public large learning model, which everybody is using and asking really bizarre questions, which is probably why it's getting dumber, or there's building your own. So if you build your own and host your own, I would assume that it's then okay to share trade secrets and even, you know, protected, uh, personally identifiable information if it's your own personal large learning model. Is that a correct assumption? That's correct. So if you were to use a tool, for example, like um, uh, Cobalt or Llama mm. CPP, or probably the one that's would be easiest for people to use would be this one that's called LM Studio. You mm. download the, the model of your choice, right? And I have like 14 different models. I have Karen, the editor, for example, there, and you run this locally. This runs on your laptop. 
Um, you need like a, a decent gaming laptop for it. But this runs on your laptop. You can unplug all your internet cables, turn off your Wi-Fi, and this will work fine because it's not sending data out anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's not recording any data. And therefore, you are protecting your secrets, your, your, your confidential information, and stuff like that. So that, is, that would be an example to your point of, yeah, you could, you could do that with those things. Um, one other thing I didn't know from her session is the IP address has migrated from a PII uh, to, uh, to sensitive protected information. And in a healthcare context, Amanda Todorovic from Cleveland Clinic said this, the I, your IP address is in a healthcare context is considered protected health information. I'm like, oh, because mm -hmm. Google Analytics logs that. She's like, yeah, we can't use Google Analytics. We are forbidden to use Google Analytics because it logs IPs and that is protected health information now. I'm like, okay. That's a big deal. Uh, yeah, I I there's a lot to unpack there and I've I'm going to write that down for a different episode cuz there's a lot to unpack there. Mm -hmm. But the short of that is if you were putting like server logs to do some you know anomaly detection and you were using a third party tool like ChatGPT, you can't do that anymore. You are you right. are violating HIPAA. Oof. If you use Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a, that's a BFD <laughs> to, exactly. to put it mildly um what were some of did you, you you know without you know throwing anyone under the bus but did you come across any sessions where the information was just flat out wrong that was being shared um not wrong in the sense of like technically wrong um there were some sessions which i thought had a a a um maybe a bias towards a certain point of view that I don't necessarily personally agree with. It doesn't make it wrong, but mm -hmm. it's not how I would approach, say, a given issue. Uh, and then there were some sessions that were just mind-blowing. Um, so uh, Professor Ethan Mollick's uh, closing day one keynote, he talked about uh, where AI is going, and he's he's a, a, a really, really well-educated, thought-out person in the space. And he was like, yeah, that what is happening right now in AI is sort of the height of irresponsibility in terms of the, the large scale implications for these different tools and technologies to the point where what big tech companies are doing is, is hazardous, is his mm -hmm. point of view. You're handing tools out to people that are like handing chainsaws to toddlers. And, and then you're wondering why people are getting hurt um, because mm -hmm. no, one no one is, by handing out access to models that are essentially raw materials you're pushing the onus of responsibility for their their intelligent use to people who don't know how to use them so again it's like handing chainsaws to people who've never had a chainsaw and then just hoping they figure it out uh, and not providing more than the minimal amount of guidance but he said a couple of other things that were really interesting one of which i wanted to, to tell you about but he did say um in terms of tools what tools to use um stick to the foundation models which is something we say all the time like yeah there's mm -hmm. A gazillion and a half vendors, but you should learn how Chat GPT itself works. You should use mm -hmm. it. Um, he said, if you want to survive as a practitioner in your field, um, it's one of his four rules: use AI for everything. He said, use AI for things that even you don't even think you should use AI for. He said, use it for everything so that you understand implicitly what it is and is not good at, and how fast it's evolving. Because you went to go use a large language model for you know, something last week and it couldn't do it. And this week it can. He's like, that's the only way you'll know how things are evolving is by using these. But the other thing he said was that development, software development 
is the most impacted area uh, by AI above and beyond anything else. He said 70% of chat GPT usage is software development now. Um, mm -hmm. And he said, and this is the part I want to get your take on. Agile development is no longer necessary because you no longer need code review cycles. You can just hand it off to the machine to do your QA. <sighs> I get it from a efficiency standpoint, but you're sort of back in that developers reviewing their own code challenge. And so I do disagree with that. I think at some point this that will be a viable thing. But from my viewpoint, and of course, I haven't dug into any of this yet. I'm just hearing it for the first time. But my off-the-cuff reaction is you have to have two different, you know, systems stood up. So, like, you can't have chat GPT reviewing chat GPT. You would want to have some other large learning model reviewing and sort of a gut check and a counterbalance against what one sort of this it's the reason why QA engineers exist in the first place um you know so you would want to have you know the code check system separate out you know standing separately from you know whatever it is you're doing in order for that to be a true statement uh so I do see a risk at least where you know, AI is in its infancy in terms of accuracy and reliability. You know, it's not accurate 100% of the time. And that to me is problematic to make the statement that you won't need QA engineers. Um, I do feel that you will still need that human intervention because the machine knows what humans know. And if the software developer is making errors, then it's introducing those errors into the machine. And that's then what the machine knows. And that to me is where you still need someone separate and independent from that. And so, you know, it's going to learn over time. It's going to get smarter. It's going to be less error prone, but it's still never going to be a perfect system. Do you agree with his argument that agile itself is unnecessary because you don't need the two week scrums anymore you can you and chat gpt or you and anthropics claude can iterate so much faster now that that cycle of you know uh stand up scrum uh two mm -hmm. you know two weeks you can shorten that down to multiple cycles within a day i think it's true in terms of the actual development work getting done i think that you probably don't need you know the agile uh, two-week iterative cycles from the actual work getting done standpoint, but from a planning standpoint, um, I still think that, you know, some kind of planning, whether it's two weeks or two days or two hours, there still needs to be some kind of, hey, what did we do? What is the outcome? What are we expecting this thing? You know, because the challenge is that you're, he's talking about black boxing everything down into okay, one person sitting in front of a computer just doing things and then the rest of the product team or the company going, well, what happened? Well, it, it's fine. The large learning model handled it, right? But what happened? What changed? What did we do? What are we telling our customers? What are the release notes? Where do we have to look for possible bugs down the line? Because there's a ripple effect of these things. So agile or any kind of planning, you don't even have to call out just 
you know, just be smart about it. You still want to do requirements. You still want to have outcomes. You still want to have measurement. Like those things you won't want to skip over. And those are those foundational pieces. Um, you know, maybe the machines move faster than humans. Great. The machines aren't, unless you're, you know, programming them this way, the machines aren't telling you, here's what the customer asked for and here's when we can deliver it. Mm-hmm. So you still okay. need that. You still need all of the pieces around the actual development work happening. Yep. And then the day two opening keynote was actually the one that I wanted to see. And I was fortunately able to see, you know, the vast majority of uh, Cassie Kozakoff, the chief data scientist, uh, chief decision scientist at, at Google was talking about uh, what jobs AI will take. And conceptually, you know, pretty much everyone agrees on, on, on the same foundational concept that AI can't take a job, but it absolutely can take individual tasks um, because mm-hmm. you, you automate away tasks. She said something very interesting that I, I, I think you might have a perspective on as well. Um, because you know me and my my tendency to not document things. Um, she said, the way AI works is it learns by example, right? You, 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 mm-hmm. We call it data, but it learns by example. And she said, if you find a task that it's easier for you to just do the task than to explain it or document it, that task should go to AI. Because the instructions are too complex for you to articulate, but the machine can learn from your examples. And so that, if in terms of identifying tasks for machines to take over, her perspective was things that you just don't want to explain. That's something a machine should do. So the challenge there is that that's literally everything for you. And so I can see where I can totally understand her perspective because the machine is essentially, it has to, you know, just in very basic terms, it has to do the documentation for it to be able to do it in a repeated way. So, you know, we're not seeing the documentation happening, but the machine has to catalog step by step to so when you say, hey, machine, do this thing, the machine's like, let me go back into my library of things, find that process, and then execute it. And so I can totally see that perspective. What I would want to see is then can you retrieve that process from the machine in order to create training materials for humans or other machines. Right. And then how do you validate that the steps were correct? So, you know, again, sort of going into that black box of software development, sure, you can train the machine to do the thing, but how do you know that the thing is correct? Mm -hmm. The other thing I thought was interesting is that she said in terms of what tasks machines will take over versus what tasks human will still remain uniquely human. Um, she said, humans inherently are creative. We are creators. We are thinkers. Um, and we are, and that's the part that you know, we enjoy and we're good at. Whereas the doing part, the execution part, um, that is simply, typically something machines are better at. And so mm-hmm. she said, A, I won't take jobs. It will just take away all the tasks that are execution-based that you were mm-hmm. of doing the thing. And I sat there and thought to myself, if you were trying to, put lipstick on the pig of you know who's going to lose their jobs that's not a very thick coat of lipstick because essentially you just said that 80 like 80 percent of your job is doing stuff right mm-hmm. um if which means that if that's the part that the machine's going to do 80 percent of the tasks in every job are going to be handed off to a machine what are you going to do with all the extra people because that's a tr- i mean that's a tremendous amount of of labor that's being off will be offloaded to machinery and 
I I agree, but it it was contradictory kind of to to me. It was contradictory to the message. You know, AI is not going to take your job. Well, yeah, it is. It's going to take eighty percent of your job, and and not. How do I say this nicely? Um, not every job requires a lot of thinking and innovation, right? Mm-hmm. The the person who cleans my hotel room does not have to innovate. In fact, they're explicitly told not to innovate. Like, <laughs> just do the thing. You know, the sheets go this way. The furniture should not be glued to the ceiling. Uh, things like that. If the, the person who... The person who you know hands me the the stuff at McDonald's after I order it. You know, again, innovation is not really a feature of that system. The, in fact, innovation is strongly discouraged. Follow the procedures, and mm-hmm. we've seen you know if you go to a McDonald's now, a good portion of each individual task is now automated. Like when you watch them put fries in, there's a machine that measures out the number of fries. There's a machine that measures how long it's in you know in the fryer and stuff like that. So the human is basically just moving a basket around, and, and that's about it for that job. It's not what it used to be. So. Mm-hmm. I feel like she's 100% correct, but that the message was disguised to be something that was more reassuring than it should have been. I think that, you know, that future state is a few years off. Um, but you're, you're right. I think that those repetitive tasks, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, Every once in a while, like you and I will talk about this, like, oh, I just need some kind of mindless task to just like, you know, it's like I, you know, you appreciate the monotony of just doing something mindless sometimes. And you're absolutely right. Those are the tasks that will no longer exist. I think for some companies, the team members won't be given a choice. The company will say, this is what we're going to do. All of these mindless, repetitive tasks are now going to be done by machines. I think there will be some holdout companies, probably smaller companies, that won't have artificial intelligence doing those things. So, you know, I sort of think, and I hate, hate the term artisanal, (laughs) but I sort of see the industry will split and you'll have the AI and then you'll have the artisanal uh, companies where things are done by hand. I mean, if you look at, you know, uh, so Amazon versus Etsy, for example, mm-hmm. you know, you have Amazon, who's basically the big box store who has run a lot of people out of jobs. And then you have Etsy, which is the collection of small businesses for the most part, where things are handmade and, you know, people are looking for more of that human experience. I think that companies like even big marketing companies uh b2b companies they're gonna you know it there's gonna be a divide you're gonna have the companies they're gonna you know use ai to automate everything and then you're gonna have the companies that are like cool ai is great but if you still want that human handmade thing then we can still do that so i i think that there's gonna be that battle and people are gonna start to choose sides of do i want automation or do i want artisanal i i think you're right because there is that sense there there is a a sense among some folks that because a lot of the machinery is black box you, you mm-hmm. don't necessarily know that you can trust it all that much whereas you, you even though technically your brain is also a black box um you, having a another human being working on something yeah there's still going to be mistakes in it but at least you 
you know who to ask about the mm-hmm. mistake. You know, there's there's someone that you can hold accountable. Whereas, you know, a neural network with 80 layers and four dropouts and a softmax layer at the end, there's no one you can go to and say, hey, this thing didn't do what it was supposed to do. Why why didn't it? And so I agree with that. The other thing that uh, Professor Malik talked about, which talks which dovetails into this, is that we are at a turning point right now in AI where we have to decide as this these these generative systems begin to consume everything what does the future look like for work mm-hmm. do we turn over our tasks as we should right to the to the machines where it's appropriate and enjoy the fruits of that that labor of you know more free time more time to think more time to spend with your family more time to take up golfing you know whatever or does it become a hypercapitalist hellscape where you have uh, one tenth the employees, but you have fifteen x the the profitability, and you just continue to work everyone to death? Um, and he said those seem to be the, the two forks in the road, the two branches in the forks in the road. And he said it's not clear which way society will go. And I'm sitting here in the audience trying not to yell. Of course, it's clear. This is America. It's a hypercapitalist hellscape. You know which road we're going to take. But I think that's where you go back to, you know, companies making those choices of, you know, fully automated versus, you know, things done by hand by humans. Um, you know, it, it, and I feel like this is a deeper conversation for another episode. Um, but I do feel like, you know, the way in which we think about, you know, hourly work and how we bring home salaries and what the value you know of the things that we do are that needs a lot of examination um you know there's you know we sort of poke fun at the thought leaders people who are just you know want to get paid to think and not do anything but hey guess what we just talked about for 30 minutes Mm -hmm. and so you know we need to rethink what that business model looks like and so there's a lot of work to do there's a lot of work to do, and I think that we as humans are not keeping up with how fast AI is changing things. And that's where, you know, that's where that fork in the road is. You know, we may find ourselves going down the path of hypercapitalism for now because we just can't keep up. But I do feel like that doesn't mean that that is going to be the only road forever. I feel like there's going to be, you know, side roads and branches off that road of people starting to figure out, okay, this is what a new business model could look like. Let me, you know, spin off from this hyper capitalism road and go back the other way. Mm -hmm. It's just going to take time and people have to be able to make those adjustments to their businesses. Yeah. It's, it's going to be very interesting how this all plays out. Um, Mm -hmm. But so that was those are some of the the big highlights from the event. I I found it incredibly refreshing. It was uh, a wonderful event. Again, p- kudos to Paul and Ashley and Kathy and everyone on the team for putting on a fantastic event. Hopefully, we'll uh, be back again next year. Of course, you know we don't want to make uh, presumptions, um, mm-hmm. but I would encourage anyone who's thinking about want to learn more about marketing ai if you're not already uh you know hanging out with us that would be a great event to go to and if you are hanging out with us then come find us at that event uh and we can all hang out together and and uh, speculate as to what the different speakers are saying i'll leave with one last funny quote from the closing day two keynote from olivia gamblin who's an ethicist uh, who mm-hmm. t- did a whole session on ai ethics uh she threw out this little gem says compliance basically means you're one step above illegal i'm like that is a great quote <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can see I'm going to hear this one a lot. 
<laughs> uh, we actually got it. We, we were hanging out at the bar afterwards and, and she and I got into a, a very long philosophical discussion about the nature of fairness and what constitutes fairness from an ethics perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is uh, a whole other bag of worms that, uh, you know, maybe maybe sometime we'll tackle or maybe, who knows, maybe we'll even have her on the show or something. That sounds good. Well, Chris, you know, I'm I'm glad that you had such uh, educational and uh, wonderful time at Macon. Um, I know you also did a deck. Uh, are your slides available for people who may have missed your talk? Funny that not only are the slides available, but within an hour and a half of getting off stage, the entire talk was available because I am a nerd. <laughs> and you can go there, get that at where can I get the slides dot com. So easy to remember. It really is. Um, yeah, everyone had a good laugh at that. Um, and if you're not sure about that or you, you just want to, to you know, chat about it, you can also get it as well as a bunch of other things in our free Slack group. Go to trustinsights.ai slash analytics for marketers where you and over 3,200 other marketers are asking and answering each other's questions about data, analytics, and AI every single day. And wherever it is you watch or listen to the show, if there's a channel you'd rather have it on, Go to trustinsights.ai slash TI podcast. Chances are we have it on the platform of your choice. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time.